<coughs> hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Our Lady of Grace, Amen. and the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, this morning we're really going to spend time in two questions. Question 48 and question 46. And it's a little bit 47, uh, I think, one or two times. Just showing some passages. But um, moving around, not going in order uh, necessarily. And the sheet I've handed out to you is uh, uh, my own attempt to give, I think, the most basic summary of this, the theological vision of Anselm's Cur Deus Oma, Why Did God Become Man? It's important because it's the background to medieval Western theories of atonement or satisfaction. Uh, this text has a great deal of uh, historical influence and, as it were, theological authority by the time Aquinas writes. And he's nuancing it, or he's reworking it, or rearticulating it. And it's one way of trying to explain the mystery of redemption. It's not the exclusive theory, but it is the theory, it is a theory that Aquinas privileges, and it's explained in another, in a sort of a more Thomistic light in the essay you have by. Um, Ben Nuvenhova, I think, is the, the name, uh, the Dutch uh, Thomist that you have to read, which is excellent, excellent essay, trying to explain the mystery of the redemption um, from a Thomist point of view. Okay, some preliminaries to go back to some things we were saying yesterday afternoon. We can talk about ascending and descending mediations of salvation. We can, in a sense, distinguish broadly two ways in which Christ's work of atonement or of reconciliation of human beings with God transpired in and through His human actions and suffering. How did Jesus' human actions and suffering reconcile us to God? Two ways. One approach is what we might call ascending and is based upon the human actions and sufferings of Jesus as ascending toward God on our behalf as one of us, as our brother, offering up His human merits, obedience, and suffering on our behalf. These are the acts of Christ's will in obedience to God, in prayer, understood as actions of love and merit, inspired by charity. That's to say, these are actions of Christ that are intercessory, such that Christ, as man, is righteous before God on our behalf. He obeys and merits for us, as one of us, offering himself to God. Likewise, in this vein, Christ's prayer on the cross and now His prayer in heaven, in, the, in glory, is intercessory. Jesus supplicates God on our behalf. The Hebrew epistle of Hebrews talks about the supplications of Christ on our behalf. His merits and prayers ascend to the Father for us. So here Christ acts as man according to the specific inclinations of sanctifying grace. What happens when sanctifying grace is in the soul of a human being? It turns him or her towards God by charity. To obey, to love, to pray, to merit. The graces that sanctify human action with respect to God and with respect to the treatment of other creatures. Right? This is what has become holy. And Christ is the one who is most holy. And He in His holiness merits for us. Now that's ascending towards God, you know, His supplication on our behalf. The other approach we might call descending, and this concerns the humanity of Jesus as it's associated with the giving of grace to us, instrumentally. Right? The humanity of Jesus becomes a channel through which graces descend from God, and in this way the humanity of Jesus acts as the instrument of His deity, or the instrument of His person. In His humanity, for example, Christ can promise the good thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And that promise is fulfilled or actualized by God, but it's being actualized by God through the instrument, instrumental medium of the humanity of Jesus. It's after all both, uh, it's the Son made man who makes the promise to the good thief. And even in a sense, the Son as man. Here Christ acts in His human nature as an instrument of the Godhead in an immediate relationship to His divine will. Right? Notice before he's supplicating the Father. Here he's acting uh, humanly to express his divine will. I will that you be healed. Christ as man wills those things that God wills for us. 
and cooperates instrumentally in the giving of graces that he has as head of the church. He cooperates instrumentally in the giving of graces that he possesses as head of the church through his own plenitude of grace, what we call his habitual grace. Now extending this grace to us, his capital grace. Now both of these ways of acting on our behalf can occur in Christ simultaneously as he suffers on the cross. He is both passive uh, before the will of God, accepting, embracing the will of the crucifixion, and he's offering up his prayers, his obedience, his sacrifice to the Father. On the other hand, he's also giving eternal life to us. Likewise, both are exemplary or examples of the grace that Christ wishes to communicate to us. The moral actions of Jesus, by which he merits grace for us, are exemplary of the kind of human love for God and other human beings he wishes to communicate to us in grace. Right? So, when Christ worships, when Christ prays, when Christ obeys, when Christ loves, when Christ intercedes, he is, as it were, the example that we follow. He's the pioneer as Hebrews says, of our faith, in a wonderful American translation, the pioneer of our faith. We, we go on after him. He leads us into the, the kinds of sanctifying grace that we wish to, to pursue. But on the other hand, uh, Christ glorified humanity and the power of his resurrection now acts on us. He acted on us in his life. This is also exemplary of what we are to become by the grace of Christ. In acting as the instrument of God in His healings through His resurrection and ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit after Pentecost, Christ makes us like Himself. So Christ acting on us in glory and through the sacraments and through the graces He gives us through the channel of His instrumental humanity is to make us like, ultimately, the risen Christ, especially in the resurrection. To conform us to Himself. Those are some broad comments. Now, I'm not going to focus much on what I call the descending merits of Christ. There's a lot in these passages as you read these things at Aquinas where he talks about the humanity of Jesus being used as a kind of instrument to sanctify us. He says the passion and the death of Jesus and the, res- the, the historical resurrection are still acting on us by virtue of the divinity of Christ. The historical mysteries of the life of Christ continue to act on us instrumentally, which is very mysterious. That's a theme in Aquinas. It's very interesting to look at. But what I'm going to focus on today is the ascending merits of Christ. Christ as man reconciling us with God in the mystery of the Passion and healing us. Now, really the place you sort of find this spelled out in order in a certain way is in question 48. If you look at the first... If you look at the titles... What he's basically asking here are how, do, how are ways that we can conceive of uh, Christ's passion, the efficiency of Christ's passion, the effects of Christ's passion, but ways we can think of how Christ reconciled us to God or, or atoned for sin in the mystery of the passion. So what does he say? Did it bring about, the first article, the first article did it bring about our salvation by way of merit? Okay, so the first thing he's going to say is Christ's, what I call ascending merit, Christ's intercession for us in the mystery of the passion crucifixion merits for us secondly did it bring about uh, our salvation by way of atonement now the word there in Latin is not atonement it is satisfactio and this is really important it actually the question is not asking did he atone for us it's asking did he satisfy for us which is important because it means he's really there dealing with Anselm's theology and giving his own interpretation of it. Now the word atonement, does anybody know where that comes from? Is it a Latin word? It's a trick question. It's an English word. Do you know what, can you see what it comes from? There's you really need at one. At one man. Yeah. And you, I think, apparently Thomas More is the or, made the word up. But I mean it means reconciliation, right? At one to place us at one with God. So it's not a very good translation, although it's a beautiful word. The word has now all kinds of connotations, more than reconciliation. When we use the word atonement now, people do tend to mean something like satisfaction, that God su- Christ suffers for us to, you know, unite, to, to um, in some way atone for our sins. Third, whether Christ's passion operated by way of sacrifice. That's important, isn't it? I mean, is the passion the ultimate sacrifice? 
in which, in light of which all other sacrifices be understood. And fourthly, did his passion bring about our salvation by way of redemption? That's to say, can we use redemption as a metaphor of buying and purchasing? God purchased us back or bought us back at the cost of his own death. Now, note two things. First, the diversity of concepts under which we can think comparatively and biblically about the redemption. The Bible gives lots of images for our redemption. Uh, One being buying and selling back redemption. Uh, Sacrifice, certainly. Um, Satisfaction, there's language that leads us to, to think that way. Merit is not a word in the Bible, but the notion that the righteousness of Christ in some way is uh, substituted for our unrighteousness is a very profound Pauline theme. So these are later, this is a later f- formalization of just some of the real diversity of images and concepts in, in the scriptures. That became, these are f- things that the medieval Latins focused in on and which are helpful. They're not exclusively the way to think about the mystery, but they are helpful. And secondly, notice, I mean, this is an argument I would make, that in the, when we consider the ascending merits of Christ, the first two notions here are the controlling concepts, merit and satisfaction. He will interpret the sacrifice of Christ and the redemption uh, effectuated by Christ in light of Christ's obedient death, merit and satisfaction. So, I would say the first two articles are the most structural. Next thing to notice before we read any of this is there's a personalist context. I mean, who is it who is meriting for us? Who is it who is satisfying for us? The Son made man who is the head of the church. So, in other words, the grounding of the redemption... This is why I said, you know, eight, question 8, article 1 is a kind of hinge. Christ is the head of the church. Because he's been, as it were, designated by, mystery, by virtue of the incarnation and the wisdom of God who willed that the sufferings, actions and sufferings of man, Jesus, be uh, salvific for us, that he is the mediator between God and man. By virtue of him being the head of the church, uh, he has been designated to redeem us. But that means that um, I mean, if we have to go back in a certain sense, we have to go back in a certain sense to the personal choice of God manifest in Christ. It's not a math problem. Uh, God had so much sins to deal with, and He needed so much merit to kind of uh, wipe away the slate clean. Um, uh, it's not some rather impersonal system of justice where you know God needed to fulfill some law that he's obliged by right so he he had to pay off the debt in court and he got the son to do it because the son seemed qualified to be our advocate right we need to avoid these anthropomorphisms but ultimately what the reality is is personal the father so loved the son that he sent his only son into the world and the person who gives his life for us shares his life with the father as 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 God i mean in his he shares eternal life with the Father. So, it's the Son Himself with the Father and with the Holy Spirit who will our redemption. And what is our redemption ultimately? You know, go back to the first article of the first question of the third three parts. Why did God become a man? Remember, He talked about that second table to remove from us, to, to save us from sin. But the first table was to more expediently unite us with God. Right? The, the final end of the redemption is, is also personalist. It's friendship. So all I'm saying is, when we look at all this merit, satisfaction, and the mystery of our redemption, and even the strict justice of Christ, who is our justice, it all is grounded most fundamentally in this personal love of the Son for the world, and in view of the friendship between God and man that God wills for us. There's something deeply personalist undergirding the whole mystery of redemption, from the personal love of the, of the Trinity for us, to the personal friendship with the Trinity that God wants to effectuate. Let's read question 48, article 1. I mean, the thing is, if you start with what I just said, you just avoid all those silly, if I may say so, Calvinist notions that come in, it's particularly strong in Calvin, that God needs to hit someone. Uh, I mean, He needs to expiate His wrath upon someone for the sake of, uh, because of our sin, and he and the son steps in the way and takes the blow. 
and the father feels better because he's struck someone down and cast them into hell and expedited his wrath upon them and once that's been appeased he can give us grace now Calvin doesn't say it that crudely it's not quite that crude I mean he says the father always loves us but wrath is a dimension of his love because he wants our righteousness and holiness and now that's fair in a way you know but then he, he sends the son in to be the object of his wrath so the son can take can absorb the full wrath of God so that he can then give us his love that's not in Aquinas it's not it's just not I, I mean you know there are people in the Catholic Church who believe that and it's permitted as far as I understand but I, I find it deeply theological and unfit, unbefitting and I would say it, it, it's a it's um I would counsel you to avoid such theology alright anyway and you just avoid that if you say the, fa- the, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit loved us and the Incarnation is a work of love to make us friends with God it doesn't mean there's not a mystery of divine wrath there is and it, but you, the Son doesn't become the object of the Father's uh, wrath I don't think oh, you know ways you can argue that but I, if you did argue it I think you'd be very careful the way you do it alright whether let's look at question 48 article 1 whether Christ's passion brought about our salvation by way of merit uh, on the contrary on the words of Philippians 2.9 therefore God exalted him Augustine says, The lowliness of the passion merited glory. So notice, the word merit is not in the Bible, but he goes back to him in Philippians. He says, Because he was obedient even unto death, therefore God highly exalted him. Right? Obedience is in the human will of Jesus. Because he exerted that obedience on our behalf, out of love, God highly exalted him. And Augustine comments says, The lowliness of the passion merited glory. Glory was the reward of lowliness. But he was glorified not merely in himself, but likewise in his faithful ones, as he says himself. John 17:10. Father, I pray for them that they may be there where I am, and they may have the glory which I had with you from before the foundation of the world. Therefore it appears that he merits salvation of the faithful. That's an excellent argument, by the way. I mean, you know, that you see in John's Gospel the night before the Passion, Christ is praying for the glorification of the Apostles. His intention in suffering the mystery of Passion is to bring us into glory. It's nice, nicely done. Okay. I answer that as stated above. Grace was bestowed upon Christ not only as an individual, that's his habitual grace, but also uh, inasmuch as he is the head of the church, his capital grace, so that it might overflow into his members. Therefore, Christ's works are referred to himself and to his members in the same way as the works of any other man in the state of grace are referred to himself. That's interesting. That's really powerful statement. Now if you read Aquinas on baptism, he follows up with this and he says, when you were baptized, you were baptized into the infinite merits of Christ himself. Poof. You know, the point being that in some sense you become adopted sons and daughters of Christ, of God in Christ in such a way that you're really uh, sharing in or partaking of the, the life, the mystical life of Christ himself. It is the very life of grace, the mystical life of Christ himself that inhabits in us through baptism uh, and through sacramental conformity to God. Yes, yeah. I know merit means... Merit is is rooted in the will. And one merits when one performs an act of love that is virtuous. Um, And so, if you go back to the root of it, it's the charity of Christ. It's His love for the Father that is the source of His merit. I mean, in other words... um, In the end, you merit something. Now, we're working, so to speak, in love. We're working our salvation in fear and trembling to merit the graces of eternal life. Let's say, see God face to face. Now, did we merit our initial graces? Say, the grace you baptized. No. Did we merit the graces that we receive of redemption? No. Right? But we can, once we are in a state of grace, merit further graces. But if you go back to Christ, He doesn't need to merit graces. He already has the plenitude of graces. 
So he doesn't really merit for himself. He merits for us. And there's something unique about his merit. I skipped the questions on his merit, but they're interesting to look at. I mean, they, they are a part of this. He can merit for others uh, because of who he is, the Son of God, because of his plenitude of grace, and he's sinless. But we're going to look at that a little bit more in the next article. Um, but it's, I mean, it's an excellent question, and it's important. Um, it, 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 I mean, we, in a way, you have to go back on, to question, uh, Prima Secundae, question 114, I believe. Uh, after the question on grace and the question on justification how does God justify us without any merit of our own and then the question on merit what after we've been justified how do we then merit further graces by cooperating with grace we merit greater graces and we can, we can also I mean that's your life is in a way to merit uh, grace for other persons now that's just, he calls that congruent merit rather than condign merit Congruent merit is merit that you don't, you don't, we don't merit for other people in strict justice. Only Jesus can do that. Only the cross does that. But we can merit congruently, by, which means by kind of fittingness of friendship. God doesn't need us to give grace to others, obviously. He willed, He chose some of us to be set apart, to be friends with Christ in a particularly intimate way, just because He wanted to associate us by love in the giving of grace. And particularly the life of the contemplative, particularly the life of the contemplative nun, is a life of association with the mystery of the cross of Jesus for the sake of congruent merits or of merits through friendship and love for the sake of other persons. So, I mean, this issue of merit is actually really important, I think. You know, but, and this is what Mary lives on the, at the mystery of the cross for Aquinas and for the Catholic Church. Mary lives in the mystery of the cross, an association, a friendship in the mystery of the crucifixion for the redemption of the world. God doesn't need Mary, the Virgin Mary's association in the mystery, but He chooses to do that. He chooses to associate the church in a particular way with the merits of the cross of Christ. Christ's merit is of a different order. It's condign merit. It's merit of full dignity because He's God and man. It's, it's, it's because of the deity of Christ that He alone can merit. But we're going to look at that in the next article. Uh, so I know it's very rapid. We can come back to it maybe a little uh, this afternoon. But it's evident that whoever, whosoever suffers for justice's sake, provided that he be in a state of grace, merits his salvation thereby. This is what I was talking about, that once you are in a state of grace, you can merit further. So martyr, is, it's a meritorious act to die out of love for Christ. Blessed are they that suffer persecution for justice's sake. Consequently, Christ, by His passion, merited salvation, not only for Himself, well, He does, okay, He says that, but likewise for His members. So He's going to say, yeah, Christ can merit, for example, His own resurrection, because He suffered without sin, out of love, for us, and for the Father. He merited to be raised from the dead, but He also merited our salvation. He did not merit, for Aquinas, a greater growth in holiness for Himself. He's already, holy, he's already the Holy One. Right. Um, and let me just turn to the second article real quick and read response one. The head and members are one mystic person. This is a very strong statement, right? We are mystically one person with Christ as His members by baptism. Therefore, Christ's satisfaction belongs to all the faithful as being His members. That's a strong statement. The, the satisfaction of Christ on the cross and His merits belong to us. You know, St. Catherine Siena says things like this a lot. Right? These are his, his merits belong to me as His bride. Also, insofar as any two men are one in charity, the one can atone for the other. It should be shown, shown later. So, yeah. But that's, I won't go into that question. But the same reason does not hold good for confession and contrition because atonement consists uh, in an outward action for which helps may be used among which friends are to be computed. Okay. There's different ways in which through friendship and love of charity, of charity being love of grace, a graced love, we can 
aid other, or assist other people who are themselves in a state of charity or those who are not? And those are complex questions that Aquinas gets into. But he's just saying here something very fundamental, which is Christ is designated head of the church so that His grace is given to those of His members, but they, but they by in turn also receive from the merits of the Passion His very grace and His very, we might say, His justice. They're justified. Right, they're rendered righteous and just by his his merits, not by their own merits, but by his. Okay, let's let's uh, move on here. So I just want to say now a last word about I'm um, spelling out different. I mean I, that was an attempt to kind of solidify the notion that this is a personalist context, right? Christ personally chooses us, and He personally associates us with Himself as the members of His body, and then. Lastly, I'll just finish. This is a point in Ben Neuvenhova's article. There's a medicinal theodicy context to Aquinas' theology of the redemption. That's to say, there's a way, theodicy is the, the ways of God's righteousness, the ways God governs the world in view of what? Remediation of evil and human suffering. And there's a way in which God governs reality for us medicinally. That's to say, to heal us. Uh, so, for, for example, to consider all the suffering that God permits to happen to Christ, which Christ accepts for our salvation in obedience to God, so all that He permits God to, Christ to suffer, and all that God permits to happen to us, I'm not talking about our moral evils, which God doesn't permit or will, well, He permits, sorry, He does permit, but doesn't will, but all, but, but all the evils we suffer, right? All the evils Christ suffers and all the evils, the physical evils or the spiritual evils we suffer that aren't moral evils, ultimately meant to permit us to be reconciled with God by grace. They're meant to remediate our personal alienation from God. Again, the point being here that, okay, the context of the economy is personalist. God wants us to bring us to communion and friendship with Him. But there's suffering. There's the suffering of Christ and there's our suffering. God makes use of this mystery of human suffering medicinally to bring us into deeper communion with Him. And to overcome our alienation from God. You say, well, if God permits us suffer, how does that keep us from being... You know, how, does, how does that do anything but augment our alienation? Well, no, that's not true. Uh, Augustine says, if God, if God didn't permit us suffering and even death, physical death, we would remain much more alienated from Him. He says it's a mercy that God permits us to die. Because otherwise, you know, we'd live forever in this world and we'd think we didn't need God. And it'd be this world will become a lot like hell. Perpetual existence without God. So it's actually a mercy to force us. Augustine says the first death is a grace, is a mercy, sorry. The first death is a mercy so that we don't fall into the second death of eternal separation from God. Now I'm not saying it's easy to accept that, but it's not a crazy idea either. It's something we spend our life kind of struggling to accept, but... The point is that when we encounter the mystery of our own suffering and suffering of others, that does lead us into scandal, sometimes, or trial. Uh, the point is, for Aquinas at least, there's no sadism on the part of God, as if he needs to see us suffer to placate wrath or something like that. It's part of an education to permit, not will, not will, but permit, human suffering in, in view of reconciliation. And that's what's going on in the mystery of the Passion as well. He permits Christ to fall into our hands, the hands of sinners who crucified Christ, so that He can bring good from it uh, and reveal even in suffering that He can triumph over our evil and human suffering and bring about reconciliation between God and humanity despite our uh, uh, worst efforts to the contrary. And therefore also provide us an example of how to live with suffering in this world in view of deeper communion with God that can overcome every personal alienation from God. Now those you say, well that's just, you know, Thomas Joseph is kind of an expressionist tableau of ideas, thank you very much. What about order? You know, it's true, that's not, that's the kind of, you know, there's a lot of just stuff there intuitively, but I'm... I think that it's important to kind of draw, to, to put some background, uh, because otherwise we can get uh, fixated on some particular dimension. Uh, particularly when you get the satisfaction theory, uh, there have been Anselm and Aquinas, but particularly Anselm, comes under a lot of attack in 20th century theology for uh, having a kind of mathematical equation theology. 
a sort of a justice, a logic of justice that's cold and impersonal and distanced from uh, existential vital issues. And I don't think that's fair to Anselm, but uh, although Anselm's a little crisper in terms of kind of a scholastic logic, but it's certainly not fair to Aquinas, and I think Aquinas is really getting in, seeing some of the deep issues of the mystery of redemption. So I just wanted to kind of lay some of those things out there before we go into satisfaction. So now we're going to talk about satisfaction. Now I'm not, I don't think for time, because of time, I'm going to read the sheet that I've given you. Um, it would involve uh, basically trying to make the case, which I, th I think one can and should make, that Anselm's Cardeus Omo, written in the um, 11th century, is in fact a very profound meditation on the mystery of redemption, uh, and that rightly is thought to be one of the most powerful treatises on the mystery of um, uh, atonement or reconciliation with God. Um, Anselm's thought to be sometimes being too strictly logical or rational. In fact, he's writing against another theory, which one can find in um, people like Origen or Irenaeus or, or uh, Gregory of Nyssa. It's not their exclusive view, but it's a view they propagate among other views of the redemption of what's called the ransom theory. The ransom theory is a patristic theme again, one among others, that we came under uh, domination and the rights of possession of the devil by sin. And Christ buys us back through the mystery of the passion. The devil believes he's another member of the human race that's uh, limited and perhaps sinful or whatnot. But what he in fact discovers is, after he's killed him, that he's God. He has no right over him. And he therefore is indebted to God who has bought us back, etc. You get this kind of very interesting, sometimes very beautiful story. But I mean, it's full of metaphorical and poetic and perhaps anthropomorphic expressions. And Anselm is convinced this is a bit mythological. This kind of bartering in the uh, Semitic market going on between uh, God and the devil. Uh, where there's a little bit of sleight of hand on God's part. Well, you know, and he kind of fools the devil into a very uh, good exchange. Um, now, whether you can make good sense of the rights, the ransom theory and the rights of the devil stuff, I don't know. There is some language of this actually in Aquinas who brings some of it back in. But Anselm wants to find something else and basically posits, uh, a, I'll just say very sketchily, which I um, mentioned previously, sort of five points which you have here. Okay, when we sin... Uh, we do dishonor to God in His infinite goodness. It's a theme of honor in Anselm. Again, a lot of people say, "Well, that's not biblical." Well, it isn't. It isn't. I mean, it's not a. It's it, you know. Of course, there is a medieval context. We think about kings receiving honor and all that. Okay, but I mean, God is, after all, in the scriptures and as a metaphysical truth infinitely above us and there is some way in which we are bound by religious virtues to honor him in any case whether this is the best word to use and it quite shies away from the word honor in this context nevertheless I mean there's some idea that we are meant to give glory to God and to fail to do so is also uh, a sin against God's wisdom and goodness and God's wisdom and goodness are infinite so the point being in Anselm sin has a certain kind of infinite gravity not necessarily because of the object, you know, like you eat a little too much chocolate at recreation, you know, venial sin of the less kind, least kind, in fact, rather understandable one, but um, but the subject, you know, the subject um, who's offended, I'm not saying God's offended, you know, personally we eat too much chocolate, if he is, he's really upset with me, but anyway, the, the point being, uh, you know, the, the person offended is of an infinite dignity. Now you get in a question there about what does it mean to say you offend God because God isn't, as it were, changed by these things. You know, and Aquinas says a nice way of saying that. We offend God by acting against His wisdom, the wisdom of His creation. We denigrate God in His works, not in Himself. Anyway, the point being, we've committed offenses against God, especially serious sin, is an offense against God that has a certain kind of infinite character to it. That's awful. 
Secondly, God cannot leave evil unpunished. It's not because God's infinitely merciful that He should be also unjust. There is a mystery of justice. There is a mystery of reparation. There's also a mystery of, uh, uh, of well, reparation in the strong sense, repairing the world. Not just moral reparation, but repairing the fallen human nature. I mean, it's, you know, so that's great. God's merciful to us. He could be merciful to us just leave us a mess, and then we'd be alienated from Him. What good does that do? I mean, His creation is therefore dishonored. His creation itself is fallen and wretched. Right? So Anselm's going to say, um, on the one hand, we've offended God in a kind of quasi-infinite way. On the other hand, God needs to make reparation both for the sake of justice and for the sake of saving His, his, his creation. He says necessity here is kind of fittingness, a, a high fittingness of honor. Therefore, third point, there needs to be some kind of satisfaction for sin to make reparation to God in a worthiness, as I have here, befitting of God in proportion to the offense committed. But here's the problem, of course. A human being cannot of themselves make reparation in proportion to the infinite honor of God or the needs of all the human race which needs to be repaired and at the same time the fourth point is the reparation needs to come the fixing of the human condition the medicinal therapy we might say needs to come from within after all it's human beings who offended God it's human beings who are broken we need human nature to be healed and we need human nature to make reparation for humans for sin right you see the problem we need an infinite satisfaction and we have a finite nature. But we need the finite human nature to make the infinite reparation. So we need the God-man. Need in quotes. We are in need of one who is both God and man. As a man, he can redeem us from within our human condition. As the God the Son, his action carries with it a certain kind of infinite dignity or value. He can worthily merit for us as man before God the Father the forgiveness of sins through the perfection of His obedience because He's also the Son of God. Okay, it's very powerful. I mean, read Anselm's Cardeus Oma sometime, you know. Skip, you know, don't read all of it if you don't want. Even it talks about the angels and stuff. That's interesting, but I mean, you can kind of skip the past. It's it's easy to skip the bits that you, you know, you can read selectively. And I have a quote here I'm not going to read, but it's where you see, among other things, he's absolutely building on Leo the Great, the Tome of Leo, and he's just using that Tome of Leo to explain exactly this theory of satisfaction and just it's a beautiful organic development of theology so you can go right from Leo into the theory of satisfaction as I'm articulating it he doesn't name Leo but I mean the Chalcedon and Leo's tome are right there he's got a very strong consciousness of being in line with the patristic tradition and now we're going to skip beyond Anselm to Aquinas who you know has his own spin on this Aquinas is going to insist in question 46, article 2, and question 46, article 3, well, one, 1 through 3, yeah, that um, the cross was not necessary for God. Now here he's curbing Anselm a little bit. And he's saying, it's not necessary that, that God save us via the mystery of the passion of the cross, but it is fitting. And especially in Article 3, he kind of lays this out. Um, and he says that the, the, he says there's a, a particular fittingness to, I mean, I would encourage you to read uh, all the reasons he gives in Article 3. Um, but I'm not going to do that because I want to get on to things I think are more important in the ten minutes that I have left here. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Because um, I want to read 48, 48-2 eventually. But I might, I might skip around a little bit. Hold on. Well, I'll just read something very brief, which is 46, Article 2, Response 3. This is important. 46, Article 2, Response 3. The question was whether there was any other possible way of human deliverance beside the passion of Christ. He says, even this justice, he's talking about the fact that we're made just by the mystery of the passion. He says, even this justice depends on the divine will requiring satisfaction for sin from the human race. 
For if he, has, if he had willed to free man from sin without any satisfaction, he would not have acted against justice. So this is him curbing Anselm a little bit. He's saying God could do it. Now why? He says, well, a judge, while preserving justice, cannot pardon fault without penalty if he must visit fault committed against another. For instance, against another man or against the state or any prince in higher authority. If you're the judge, you can't just say to the criminal, you know, personally, I'm moved by your story and the fact that you did these things means I'm going to give you a break. No, because you act as representative of the state in protecting the other person and the common good. But God has no one higher than himself, for he is the sovereign and common good of the whole universe. Consequently, if he forgives sin, which has the formality of fault in that it is committed against himself, he wrongs no one. Just as anyone else looking for a personal trespass without satisfaction asks mercifully, acts mercifully and not unjustly. So God could just have said, I'm the sovereign God and I forgive you, boom, Adam and Eve, and no reparation necessary. He could have done it. And, he, and, it, and Aquinas is strong there. He says, you know, there will be no injustice in it. But now look what he says. Uh, well, oh no, he finishes it. And so David exclaimed that he sought mercy. To thee only have I sinned. As if to say, thou can pardon me without injustice. That's right. Um, but then let's go back one article to reply to objection three. And this is really where you see something very interesting, I think, brilliant. Uh, this is, so this article 1, reply to objection 3. That man should be delivered by Christ's passion was keeping with both his mercy and his justice. With his justice because by his passion Christ made satisfaction for the sin of the human race. Now, this suggests what Aquinas is saying is, okay, God did not have to become a man and justify us by the mystery of the passion. And, if he, and he would have still not acted unjustly. But, if he's going to satisfy for our sins, then he does have to become a man. I mean, if, if, there's going to be, if we're going to be justified by satisfaction, by a member of the human race, making good for the human race, then we need the mystery of the Incarnation. God could have just given us a blank check of mercy. Instead, he decided to redeem us by justice through satisfaction. And so man was set free by Christ's justice and with his mercy for since man of himself could not satisfy for the sin of all human nature as was said above God gave him his son to satisfy for him according to Romans talks about that and this came of a more copious mercy than if he had forgiven sins without satisfaction. Now see that seems to me the heart of the matter. Aquinas is saying against Anselm a little, a little bit God it didn't have to become man to save us, to satisfy us for our sins. It was fitting. Why was it fitting? Well, because it was the way in which He could make satisfaction for us by being the God-man. But, that's not because God has, as it were, a thirst for justice that He needs to satisfy. He could have forgiven us in His magnanimity without making just reparation for our sins through the mystery of the cross. And He would have still been just because He's God. But, this is the more merciful way to do it. It's more merciful precisely because it renders us just through satisfaction. In other, words, in other words, to give us the justice of Christ is the most merciful thing God can do. It's the more merciful thing for God to do. It's actually more merciful than if God had just said, you know what, I'm giving you a free pass, we're going to start back at scratch, I'm going to put you in a state of grace, and we're going to start all over again. Not only does he do that, in fact, but he does that through the mystery of the passion to manifest his love to us more perfectly, but also to um, make reparation for us in his own flesh, in his own human life, death, and obe obedience and death. So, the justice of the cross is strict. Christ redeems us by strict justice. There's an infinite dignity to the one who suffers and therefore there's an infinite merit there's a kind of infinity the merit of Christ's passion but it's not because of a math problem that God we offended an infinite God and we need an infinite redeemer it's because of or a kind of a logic strict logic of justice it's because it's a greater personal mercy of God to give us this gift of justification 
Yeah, you can spend some time thinking about that. But I mean, it's it's a really interesting twist there. All right, now let's just finish by reading forty-eight two. Whether Christ's passion brought about our salvation by way of satisfaction or atonement. It is written, on the contrary, it is written, in Christ's person, Then did I pay that which I took not away. But he has not paid who has not fully atoned, therefore are satisfied. Therefore it appears that Christ by his suffering has fully satisfied for our sins. I answer that. He properly satisfies for an offense who offers something which the offended one loves equally or even more than the detested offense. But by suffering out of love and obedience, Christ gave more to God than was required to compensate for the offense of the whole human race. That's nice, right? Because of the dignity of the person of Christ, who is the Son made man. There's more uh, merit in Christ's suffering. The, the, it's disproportionate to the sin of the whole human race. Which again suggests it's an overcome, I mean, it's a superabundance. It's a superabundance that stems from love, not from strict, some sort of strict calculus of necessity. He does what's necessary, but he does more than what's necessary, infinitely more than what's necessary, because he does it out of love. First of all, because of the exceeding... Ch- now, I guess three reasons how Christ atones for us, and they're all three very different. First of all, because of the exceeding charity from which He suffered. The charity of Christ is created grace. And you talked about yesterday how it's created and finite, but it's infinite in the sense that it's unlimited. There's this unlimited plenitude of grace in the heart of Christ. And Christ suffered, moved by this plenitude of divine charity. That's what we celebrate today, right? On the solemnity of the Sacred Heart. The mystery of the plenitude of the divine love in the heart of Christ. The charity of Christ. Secondly, on the account of the dignity of His life which He laid down in atonement or satisfaction. That's to say, this is the question of who suffered. For it was the life of one who was God and man. That's really where you get, as it were, the strict infinity of the, the merit of Christ. Thirdly, on account of the extent of the passion and the greatness of the grief endured. That's the intensity of suffering. I mean, Christ didn't just suffer. I mean, Christ, strictly speaking, perhaps could have, you know, just obeyed. Lived a human life of obedience and love. And God could have declared, the God-man has saved us. He's redeemed the world. That would have been less fitting for the propagation of faith because the passion and the resurrection manifest more profoundly the mystery of God's wisdom and love. But also, the passion deepens the merit of Christ's redemption of us. It's one thing to obey us by living the hidden life in Nazareth. It's another thing to obey by living the mystery of the cross. And there's a deeper expression of love to live that out in suffering. And therefore, Christ's passion was not only a sufficient, but a superabundant atonement or satisfaction for the sins of the human race. According to First John, uh, first letter of John 2, 2, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. Let's just finish by looking at response to objection two, uh, three. The, uh, the objection is this. Further, satisfaction implies equality with the trespass since it is an act of justice. That's true. I mean, we've committed injustices before God and to be justified, we would say, in a fully sufficient way, we need someone to make reparation for us and we need to be joined to that person. And it's Christ who made the reparation and we're joined to Him as members of His mystical body who, who have His merits and graces as our own by virtue of His gift and our faith. But then the person says, But Christ's passion does not appear equal to all the sins of the human race because Christ did not suffer in His Godhead, right? I mean, Godhead doesn't suffer. He rather suffers in His flesh, which is a finite creaturely thing. Uh, according to 1 Peter 4.1, Christ therefore having suffered in the flesh. Now the soul, which is the subject of sin, is of greater account than the flesh, therefore Christ did not atone for our sins by His passion. Well, 
we could respond. Of course, one way we could respond is to say, but he did suffer in his soul. And that's what we're going to look at in the next hour. Uh, particularly the, the mystery of the love and suffering. Uh, the, both the consolation of the soul of Christ in the mystery of crucifixion and his love, and on the other hand, his suffering. But Aquinas doesn't answer that way. He goes to the objection about the flesh. Is the flesh of Christ's suffering of value? He says, The dignity of Christ's flesh is not to be estimated solely from the nature of flesh, but from the person assuming it, namely, inasmuch as it was Christ's flesh, the result of which was uh, that it was of infinite worth. The infinite worth of the flesh of Christ. Now see, that's all about the hypostatic union. Go back to the, the fundamental core. Why are the sufferings of Christ of an infinite dignity? Because of the subject who suffers. The one who suffers is, is the Lord. They have crucified the Lord of glory. They did not know it, but they crucified the Lord of glory. So the Lord being crucified, His flesh has an infinite dignity. I have given my flesh for the life of the world. That's why you can sort of, well, then scholastic Thomas get the, the delicate question, what, where, formally speaking, is the priesthood of Christ? What is the priesthood of Christ? If you go back down to its like core, and I, I hold a view, I think um, Gary Goose says something like this, but I think there's a, a, maybe a different way to say it. I mean, for, I think using something like this, I'd say, formally speaking, Christ is priest as man by virtue of his human love his charity, and his offering of his own life, including his bodily life. It's through the human mystery of his obedience unto death that he's a priest. The priest. The unique savior. And the, the one true high priest who mediates between God and man. Formally. But fundamentally, which I'd say is different than formally, fundamentally to say, uh, hypostatically, it's as son that he's a priest. Because it's as man he saves us, but that man who saves us, his sufferings, his obedience, his sufferings, and his love have an infinite dignity by virtue of who he is, the Son, God made man. Therefore, there's an infinite dignity to his human acts. So I, I think to, to to understand the priesthood of Christ, you have to have both the humanity and the divinity. Formally speaking, Christ is priest as man. Otherwise, you'd have the priesthood to be eternal. Right, the second person of the Trinity would be eternally a priest, just by being in, in eternal generation. There'd be priesthood. There are people who say that. I don't. I think that's a terrible error. I think the priesthood is a result of the incarnation. But on the other hand, it's not as if the priesthood of Christ and its uniqueness in the history of humanity can be divorced from or simply exclude consideration of his deity and of his identity as the Son made man. So I think you have to say it's formally in humanity, but it's humanity that is fundamentally, uh, fundamentally or hypostatically subsists in the Word, so is the, the humanity of the Word, uh, and therefore as his priest as the eternal Son and Word. Okay, well that was a technical consideration. We'll come back in an hour and talk about the mystery of the sufferings of Christ.